Mayday, I'm going to ditch, by Jim Hutchison. One moment the helicopter was running perfectly. The next, it was hurtling towards the wind-whipped ocean. From the passenger seat of the Bell 47 helicopter, Steve Francis gazed at whitecaps speckling the surface of Spencer Gulf a thousand feet below. Hell of a place to go down, he thought. Glad this 15-minute crossing was their only time over the vast, crooked triangle of ocean, thrusting 300 kilometres into South Australia. Steve glanced across at pilot Don Urquhart. His 40-year-old friend's dark, handsome features were furrowed in concentration as he steered a southeasterly course over this 30-kilometre-wide stretch of the gulf in a gusting 25-knot tailwind. No reason to worry, Steve told himself. Except for the high winds, they had enjoyed clear flying since leaving Sejuna, Don's hometown, at 8am on this Saturday, October 23, 1993, and the white, red and grey four-seater was running like a Swiss watch. Wyala, their last refuelling stop at 1.30pm, had disappeared behind. Ahead lay Port Piri, turning point for the 185-kilometre leg south to Parafield Airport in Adelaide, where Steve lived. When Don called Steve the week before to invite him on the trip to have the helicopter's faulty radio fixed and some spray painting done, the burly plumber arranged to take a Friday evening flight to Sejuna. Steve enjoyed flying with Don and at the age of 39 was now learning to fly fixed-wing aircraft. The pair had met six years before when Steve dropped into Don's dental practice. Their friendship grew and on hundreds of scuba dives together since, Steve had discovered in Don a friend he could count on. The helicopter was comfortably cruising at 1,000 feet when, without warning, it spun 180 degrees and the engine failed. Through his headset, Steve heard Don's shocked voice, Damn it, Steve! We're going down, mate! Steve gripped the armrests in alarm. You're not serious, he asked in disbelief. We're going down, Don repeated. Fighting for control, Don flicked switches and held down the starter button, trying to restore power as he put the stricken machine into a steep glide. This isn't really happening, Steve thought. Grabbing his mobile phone, he hit the preset for his home number, hoping to call his wife, Jennifer. He cursed when he heard the e-or of an unprocessed call, then tried the Parafield Airport tower number. Again, he couldn't get through. Don's face was chalk white. She's not responding, he said. Get on the radio and send a mayday. Steve thumbed the microphone on the portable VHF backup. Mayday! Chopper going down in the Gulf off Wyala, he yelled. There was no response. They were so close to the sea now, they could see spray whipping off huge waves. Just 30 seconds had elapsed since the engine died. Mayday! Steve yelled again into the mic. Tighten your seatbelt, Don ordered. I'm going to ditch. Steve braced himself. We're going to hit hard. When the helicopter slammed sideways into the ocean, its plexiglass bubble exploded into pieces. Steve was stunned as the cockpit disintegrated around them. With the two men still strapped inside, the shattered machine began sinking. Freezing seawater surged past Steve's face as he clawed wildly for his lap belt. In the underwater half-light, he saw Don slumped over the controls, still strapped to his seat. Steve's mind raced. If I release my belt, I'll get sucked out, but Don will go down. He leaned over and clicked open Don's harness release. 
Then he grabbed Don's waist and heaved until his friend's limp body disappeared through the hole where the windscreen had been. With every second, the helicopter was plummeting closer to the bottom 20 metres below. Lungs bursting, Steve tore his own belt catch open and kicked away from the wreck. He burst to the surface, gulping air. From the crest of a one and a half metre wave, he spotted Don six metres away amid pieces of wreckage. Praying that Don was conscious, Steve swam towards his friend. A stab of fear struck him as he saw blood well from an ugly ten centimetre gash on Don's forehead, fanning across his face. Are you all right? Steve yelled over the howling wind. Don nodded. I've got half a lung full of seawater, but I'll be okay. Steve took stock. They could not have gone down in a worse place. The city of Wyala, the closest land, was at least ten kilometres away. They had had no time to grab anything to float on. Steve held little hope that their mayday calls had been heard. They were not expected at Parafield Airport until 4pm and it could be hours before they were missed. Even if the alarm were raised, chances were slim they would be spotted. Steve's tracksuit weighed him down but gave some protection against the 16-degree seas. Don was worse off in shorts and T-shirt. We're going to die out here, Steve thought. God, we're a long way out, mate, he shouted. We can't swim that far in these seas. Yes, we can, Don told him. Kick your shoes off and start swimming. Reassured by Don's tone, Steve began stroking into the swells towards Wyala. Don't waste your time, Don said, pointing to crash debris disappearing in the opposite direction. Our only chance is to swim side on to the tide. He's right, Steve realised. Don's confidence steadied him. Slow and easy, mate, Don said. Steve could see Mount Young down the gulf, twice as far away as Wyala. He began to swim towards it. They tried to breaststroke, but breaking waves constantly battered their faces, gagging them with seawater. Fighting exhaustion, the men rolled over and swam on their backs. After a while, Steve kept looking over at Don, who was coughing regularly. I hope he doesn't have an internal injury, Steve thought. Over the wind and waves, he heard Don praying, God, please help us. At 1.35pm, Steve's 42-year-old wife, Jennifer, looked at her wall clock and paced uneasily around her Adelaide kitchen. Steve had promised to call in the early afternoon to let her know what time to pick them up at Parafield's Aircraft Service Centre. It's not like him not to phone, Jennifer thought. She could not shake a bad feeling about this trip. Steve and Don spotted a huge ore carrier moving slowly up the gulf. Helplessly, they watched as it sailed by less than two kilometres away. No point in waving, Steve thought, cursing their luck. Flipping onto his stomach, he peered ahead. To the northwest, Wyala was getting smaller. Just swim, he told himself. The men ploughed on for what seemed an eternity. Then Don began falling behind, coughing continuously. Repeatedly, Steve swam back to him. You've got to keep moving, mate, he urged. At times, Steve held his friend by the hair to support him. He's in a bad way, Steve thought. Desperately, he scanned the horizon for any sign of rescue. By the sun's angle, he reckoned it must be after 3pm. They'd been swimming for over an hour. Now, Don floated on his back, unable to move. If we don't swim, we'll be swept out to sea, Steve thought. I've got to try and get him going. 
Grabbing Don again by his thick, curly hair, Steve pulled his friend through the waves. After a few minutes, Don said, I'm all right now, mate. Steve released him, treading water nearby, as Don struggled to swim on his back, kicking feebly. Soon, he could swim no more. Steve, too, was exhausted, reduced to feeble paddling. Only the strength in his upper body, gained from tugging pipe spanners and lugging hot water tanks all day, was saving him from drowning. Suddenly, Don's eyes widened in fright. Help me, he cried, disappearing beneath the waves. Arms thrashing, Steve raced to the spot and dived under. One and a half metres down, he grasped Don's outstretched hand and clawed for the surface. With one hand gripping Don's hair, he struggled grimly to keep them both afloat. Come on, Don, swim, Steve panted. But his friend lay limp in his arms. They went under a second time. His lungs bursting, Steve had to let go. Then taking a huge breath, he again dived after his friend. Grabbing Don's hair, Steve hauled him back up, the effort sending his leg muscles into agonising cramps. He pulled Don's face close and screamed, For God's sake, swim! But when he looked into his friend's face, he was horrified to see his eyes glazed in death. No, Don! Steve wept. Chest heaving, he cradled Don's head for a moment, not wanting to give him up to the sea. There's nothing I can do, Steve thought after a while. Goodbye, mate, he sobbed, gently releasing him. Don's body sank beneath the waves. Never had Steve felt so utterly alone. Why not join Don and get it over with, he despaired, scanning the endless churning swells. He thought of Jennifer. At least his life insurance policy would pay off their mortgage. He tried to shake off the growing hopelessness. I can't give up on Jennifer. If I quit now, no one will know what happened to Don. I must keep going. The wind and waves rose higher, and in the maelstrom Steve became unsure of which way to swim. A flash of blind, unreasoning anger rose in him. He cursed into the wind. Don, why did you leave me? As he rose and fell on the wind-lashed sea, an eerie sensation crept over him and he sensed a presence. As clearly as if it were in the water next to him, he heard a voice say, Slow and easy, mate. I must be going nuts, he thought. That sounded like Don. But when Steve struck out towards the oar carrier, which had anchored some kilometres behind him, he heard Don's voice again. Not that way. Bewildered, he hesitated. His spirit is guiding me, Steve thought in astonishment, back paddling again towards land. Hour after hour, Steve swam on in an endless, frigid purgatory, but the shore seemed no nearer. As the sun angled low in the sky, his spirits faltered. Again, Don's voice reassured him. Keep the waves on your left. Don't give up. Mount Young was closer. Steve tried to take his mind off his cramped legs with an old trick his father taught him. On long driving trips, he kept his bladder painfully full to stop himself dozing off. Now Steve did the same, hoping this might also slow dehydration. Suddenly, his heart leapt. A low-flying aircraft was cannoning straight towards him, silhouetted against the sunset. They're looking for me, Steve whooped, waving frantically. But the plane flew heedlessly on. He had swum for about four hours, 
but land was still at least five kilometres away and the temperature was falling. Terror gripped him at the thought of spending the night alone in the churning water. Then he looked up and blinked in amazement. Three pelicans appeared out of the gathering dusk and circled silently overhead. That's Don and a couple of guardian angels looking out for me, Steve thought. Round and round, the great birds wheeled above him until darkness fell. Don won't let me give up, Steve thought. As he swam on, Don's voice returned. You can do it, Steve. Slow and easy. By 4.30pm, Jennifer was frantic with worry. For the second time that afternoon, she phoned the aircraft service centre at Parafield. Something's wrong, she told the operations manager. Steve would have rung me if he was this late. I'll check with air traffic control, the operations manager promised. Half an hour later, she rang Jennifer to say there was still no news. Call me Stephen, she begged. Her stomach knotted in fear. At 6pm, the telephone rang again. It was the operations manager. They're missing, she said. The Rescue Coordination Centre in Melbourne is now involved. Jennifer slowly sat down. Oh no, she sobbed. Just after dark, the wind died. Steve flipped over on his stomach in the calmer sea and breaststroked towards a string of light smudging the horizon. A renewed strength seemed to flow through his arms. Help, he shouted at the top of his lungs over and over. Lightning flickered as a storm approached. Let it rain, Steve muttered. The patter of raindrops sent him rolling onto his back, his parched mouth open. A few drops fell, then the storm passed. He tried to stop to rest, but bit his lip in pain as his legs locked in cramps. Hour after agonising hour, Steve propelled himself forward, his arms like lead weights. The light seemed brighter now. I'm definitely getting closer, he thought. He felt something brush against his legs. Seaweed! Where there's seaweed, there has to be land. He took a breath and let himself sink a couple of metres. No bottom. He painfully pulled himself back to the surface and tried to concentrate on swimming. After a few minutes, he let himself sink again. This time, there was no mistaking the gritty feel of sand between his toes. He turned and looked back to where the twinkling ship's lights marked the chopper crash site. Thanks, Don, he said. Bobbing across the shallow sandbars rimming that part of the gulf, Steve reached waist-deep water and tried to stand, but his numbed legs were unable to support his weight and he fell again and again. He realised the flats might go on for kilometres and he knew that Spencer Gulf was lined with spiky mangrove swamps. Though he could still see lights ahead, he had no idea what lay in the darkness between. Steve began to crawl forward, pulling himself along the bottom with his arms. As feeling returned to his legs, he stood up and staggered on. The insides of his thighs were raw, bleeding from rubbing against his tracksuit. In the frosty night air, the suit chilled him like an icy blanket. He pulled the top off and threw it away. Soon he shook uncontrollably as potentially deadly hypothermia slowed him to a jerking shuffle. After coming so far, I'm going to die of exposure, he thought. Then, as if in a dream, Steve felt a warm offshore breeze caress his skin. He rejoiced, warm for the first time since his ordeal began. But with the warmth came an overpowering drowsiness. As he sagged to his knees, intending to rest for a few minutes, 
Don's voice warned, Don't stop now. Walk or your body will seize up. All right, Steve mumbled, dragging himself to his feet. Almost immediately, he floundered into mangrove trees and was mired to his knees in mud. For an agonising kilometre, only the lights, ever brighter, drove him on. A vague shape loomed through the mangroves. A building! Steve surged forward and suddenly stood swaying on dry sand. His ordeal was finally over. His hellish 12-kilometre struggle had taken almost seven and a half hours. Shortly after 9.30pm, Christina Meredith, on duty at the Annie Lockwood Court Hostel for the Aged and Frail south of Wyala, was on her rounds when she heard a cry from bushes near the waterfront. Help me! Cautiously, the 35-year-old caregiver walked towards the voice. At 10pm, Jennifer jumped as the telephone rang. I've got Steve here, a woman said. At 2am, Jennifer walked into Wyala Hospital and threw her arms around her husband. For two days, doctors treated Steve for extreme exposure and dehydration. Released from hospital, he limped aboard a police plane to pinpoint the crash site. A week after the accident, Don Urquhart's body was found washed up on a rocky seawall off North Wyala. With a group of Don's friends, Steve is now searching for the sunken helicopter, hoping to learn the cause of the crash. Steve still enjoys flying and expects to have his pilot's licence soon. He tries to treat each day as a precious gift given to him by his best friend. Don gave me the strength to go on, he says. If he hadn't guided me, I'd have been taken out to sea. Somehow, I know, his spirit saved my life. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia.